you ever wondered why we spend so much time during our worship service in the Word of God, preaching and teaching the Word of God, reading the Word of God, singing the Word of God, we believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. And so I don't know what else would captivate God's people more than having God speak directly to us. And it should. It should, it should draw us in. We should be hungry to speak and to know Him and to know His will. The very fact that the Creator of the universe would reveal Himself personally and privately as He has done to us, telling us of His character and His nature, of His holiness and His mercy, that He would do that, and then He would reveal Himself through Christ. This is a most amazing thing. I imagine if I asked most of you, I'd like to see your diary, please give it to me so I may read it. You'd say no if you have one. And yet God has done just that. He's opened up himself. He's opened up his life. He's opened up all of eternity that we might hear him. I prayed last night fervently for you to hear God this morning, not to hear Pastor Keith and not to hear anything other than Christ speak to you. I pray that that prayer is answered. I will do my best to preach the word of God faithfully. I want you to do your best to listen, to hear, and to submit to God. Amen? Will you do that with me now? Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Saul's dead. The Israelites have no king. They're back in the same situation they were in the time of Judges before Samuel made Saul king. And what we find here take place in 2 Samuel, and we found it take place throughout human history, whenever a vacuum takes place in the physical world, in physics, in politics, and certainly in the realm of, of the spiritual, whenever a vacuum takes place, things are drawn into it. We've seen over the history of the last 20, 30 years, Robbie Zacharias years ago, he said, you know what's going to be drawn in with the vacuous nature of Christianity? Because the church is not going out and sharing the gospel and making disciples, you know what's going to be drawn in? He said, Islam. 20, 30 years ago, they, people laughed at him. They did. They said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, Islam is not. And look what we have. Look what we have today. Look what we have in the West. Look what's taking place in Europe. The vacuum that was created here by Saul's death drew in Two figures, two characters. One appointed by God, David himself, and another one appointed by man. Specifically appointed by Abner. His name was Ishbosheth. He was the son of Saul. And what we see take place in this chapter, it's fantastic. You have the divinely appointed kingdom of God and the man made counterfeit created by Abner. And those two come into full collision here in chapter 2. And by God's grace, I would like us to glean some things as we see this, this conflict take place. We'll draw from this passage eternal teachings that draw us into Christ. When we, I, I mentioned this last week, but maybe it's good to mention it again. When we study the narratives of the Old Testament, you know, if you were raised in the church and you had traditional Sunday school, you have all these little stories that don't fit together. The purpose of the biblical narrative, there's much more history that's not in the Bible. So whenever we have a biblical narrative, we must ask, why is this here? Why did God give this to us? And the reason that we have these narratives is that we might see the great creation, fall, redemption, consummation story. The great story over it all. And these, these smaller stories are supposed to draw us up into that. They're supposed to point us to Christ and the Savior and the need to be saved. And by God's grace, this chapter does that as well. My hope, many hopes I have for you, at the end of 2 Samuel, you will read the narrative and you will see Christ and you will see the kingdom of God and you'll see the great story that plays itself out and you'll see your part in it. 
Can I get another amen for that? Because I like, that's important too. Okay. Three things I want you to see this morning. You know, in the early church, they said amen all the time. Let it be so. Let it be so. Number one, the kingdom of God established. We will look at that. Number two, the kingdom of God contended. And number three, a peace offering from the king. The kingdom of God established by God. The kingdom of God contended by man. And then the peace offering that comes from this king. Look with me, if you have your Bibles open, 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, listen closely, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. King over the house of Judah. With Saul's death, the first thing that David does is he goes before the Lord and says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to go back? Do you want me to go back to the promised land? Shall I go into the cities of Judah? And God says, yes. God brings him back to his tribe. David is from the tribe of Judah. He brings him, he says, I want you to go to the city of Hebron. And and that city was the most important city at that time in Judah. And we know that city had significance to the people of Israel as well. Because it was in Hebron. Remember, Abraham bought that from the Hittites. Not the city itself. He bought a burial plot for his wife. And and at this time that David comes to the city, the city of the patriarchs, this city where the men who had made a covenant with God and God with them rested. Isaac and Sarah, I mean, uh, Abraham and Sarah were there. Isaac and, and Rebekah were there. Uh, Jacob and Rachel were there. And so he's going back to a city that resonates the covenant of God. And that's where God tells him to go. So he leaves Ziklag. Ziklag was um, in the area with the Philistines. He takes his wives, he takes his men, and he, he comes home. He comes back to the people of God. Remember, he was a sojourner in a foreign land, and now he's back in the promised land, back where he's supposed to be. And when he gets there, in verse 4, what do the men do? Look at verse 4 again. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You say, well, but it's just the house of Judah. It's not all Israel. Isn't he supposed to be the king of Israel? The answer is yes, but not yet. The promise that was made to Abraham centuries before that from his lineage a king would come and the promise that would be fulfilled centuries later in the coming of the king, Jesus Christ, actually begins to sprout here. In other words, the seed that was planted with Abraham, it takes root, it breaks through the soil and now we have a budding here. We have the beginning of the fulfillment of this great promise of a king. A king. It becomes visible. And is a marker, it's a critical marker in the creation, fall, redemption, consummation story of God. We fell in the garden. God promises through Abraham that he would make for himself a people. He promised he would bring a king. And here is this king, a foreshadow of the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. It becomes visible. It is a foreshadow of what is to take place. It's small. You know, at the time, it wouldn't even have been front page news. I mean, Judah, this on the political scene of the world arena, this was, this was a non-issue. 
It would have been on the back page of the paper if it made the news at all. But it was significant for the people of God. Why? What was God doing? God was revealing himself. He was revealing himself in a very real, practical, and personal way by placing David on the throne of his people. Because through David, as the prophets had testified to, there was going to be hope of another king. Hope of the king, the son of David, the greater David, which was Jesus Christ. And the hope that this king would bring, our Lord and Savior, was not just a hope for Israel, it was a hope for all mankind. It was a hope where this king would come and he would offer us freedom from sin and death in ourselves. Where he would bring this kingdom to reign both now and forever and that he would call people from every tribe and every nation, every tongue to come into this new kingdom. So when we see the kingdom of David being established, it should cast our eyes to Christ. And now it should cast our eyes to Christ coming again because that's what's starting here and it's being put in motion and what a great momentum it has. What a great momentum it has. The future king, Jesus Christ. It's like that mustard seed. We, Christ himself talks about it. That mustard seed, that small seed that planted. It seems innocuous, devoid of glory, devoid of majesty. And, and David's being crowned in Judah. It was a small affair. I mean, the, Jude, the Judaites were happy. We see that those in Israel, those in the northern tribes were not so happy. We'll see that in a bit. But Jesus said, this is just the beginning in Luke chapter 13, Christ said, what is the kingdom of God like? And what is this kingdom that is starting, God is starting with David like? Jesus said, and to what shall it be compared? Verse 19 in Luke 13. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. It starts small. We're talking about a small, humble tribe in Judah, that from him the king of the universe would come. If you've ever been to Napa in the wintertime and you've had a chance to drive by the vineyards, they look horrible. I mean, it, usually they're just the, um, if they cut them all the way back, you just have the vine stumps. And if they're still on the, on the, the old vines or some branches, they, they're just twigs. They're good for kindling, maybe starting a fire. But, you know, if someone says, oh, you should go to Napa, it's beautiful, and you go in the winter, you're going to say, what are these people looking at? Wait a few months. Go in the late summer or early fall, and those same fields that looked like they were ripe for burning are full. The same roots are full with luscious, beautiful green leaves and some of the best grapes that are produced in the entire world. Patience. When that seed is sown initially, it looks like it lacks glory and power. But you wait, and over time, just like that mustard seed, it will grow and it will become a tree, and the birds of the air will nest in its branches so too do we see the beginning here, small. But we know the end. We know how it ends. The great glory of the son of David, Jesus Christ, coming and establishing his kingdom here on earth forever. Now, saints, there should be a great pause for us, especially in our cultural moment. We have a tendency to measure God, his kingdom, and his church by all the secular measurements. How, how strong is a church? You'll say, well, how many people go there? That's the secular parameter. You say, well, well, what impact is that church having on the community? You say, well, how many ministries do they have? You say, well, well how are they doing with missions? You say, well, how, many, how much money do they send overseas? The kingdom of God is not measured like this. We must be wise when we look at even our own lives and we look at the kingdom of God. We must not measure it by the standards of the world. We must recognize that in many places that seed is still just being born. In many hearts that seed is just being born. 
How many of us would look at the ministry of Jesus Christ if we used the standards of the world? We would say what? Failure. I mean, he had 12 ragtag guys, one of which became a traitor and turned him in. We saw throughout his ministry as the people followed him. If he did not keep feeding them and he didn't keep doing the miracles, what did they do? They laughed. They said, well, this is it. I mean, we want more. An unimpressive beginning for David, an unimpressive beginning for our Lord. But Jesus Christ makes it clear. Listen closely, saints. We had a chance to sing it this morning. Where two or more are gathered in his name, where 3,000 are gathered in his name, his kingdom is present and he is present. He's in our midst. He says in Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus answered them, listen. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is in the midst of you. This is extraordinary. The Pharisees are asking the king about the kingdom coming. And the king is standing there talking to them. He said, it's already in your midst and you don't even know it. It's it's bypassed you. You've missed it. And that means, saints, for you and for me and for all those who are laboring in the faith, laboring in the kingdom, desiring to serve Christ, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to grow the church, all of us, we must realize that many are, we're still in that Hebron state. It's still that planting state for many of us. And therefore, if we place false expectations upon God's church or God's people, or if you place false expectations on your life, saying, I should be here, I should be stronger, I should be more powerful in the faith, you must be careful. Don't measure your walk, don't measure the church by the standards of this world. It's not all that impressive by the standards of this world. The culture says, I want to see the visible power. I want to see a sword. I want to see money. The kingdom advances nonetheless with Christ firmly seated upon his throne and and God making inroads into human hearts, right? Because that's where the seed first goes. That great work that God does, when when he says it's in your midst, they can't see it because the Jews at that time, they still thought that a king was going to come like David, overthrow the Romans, establish the nation of Israel, and rule over the world. Wrong kingdom. Then that will happen at his second coming, but not this point in time in human history. The kingdom that Jesus brought, it would start as mustard seeds in the hearts of men, in the hearts and minds of women, and it would come in, and it would begin to, to transform us from the old man, from the flesh with its passions and desires, into new people, into a holy people. It would give us new thoughts and new desires It would bring new aspirations in our love for God and for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. This very reigning of God and his people, it starts with us. It starts with his church. And it starts on the inside. Is it any wonder they said, where is it? We can't see it. But yet you know it's true. If you know Jesus Christ, then you know he reigns in your life. And if you've walked with him for any period of time, you can say, he has utterly changed me. I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. That's a revolution. That's a reigning. That's a reigning of Christ in your life. And it's this very reigning that brings about the collision with this world. As you pursue Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you grow in grace by the means of grace, you do this. You study your Bible. 
You meditate on the scriptures. You, you bring some of those to full memorization so you walk with them throughout the day. You commit yourself to prayer. I mean, fervent prayer to the Lord. You engage in ministry. You, you engage in, in service to the Lord by exercising your gifts. Share the gospel with the lost. You do this, and you know what? You will change. The Holy Spirit will change you through these means of grace. And the more you change, the more you become like Christ, the more different you will become from the world. And what happens? Conflict. Collision. You say, I know that. I know that in my marriage. I know that at home. I know that at work. I know that with my friends. You wait on the Lord as, as, as David did. You follow Christ as the disciples did. You do what David did. Look at verse 1 again. You do this. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? You put your life before God. You say, I'm not going to rush into this. I'm going to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to follow his lead. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. There'll be conflict. A.W. Pink talked about this not rushing, and this man said, he said, we never lose anything by believing and patiently waiting upon the Lord, submitting to God. He says, but we are always made to suffer when we take things into our own hands and rush blindly ahead. That's what Abner does. Abner did not wait upon the Lord. He did not submit to the teachings that came directly from God through the prophets. Instead, he took it upon himself and his power to appoint a king over the northern tribes. And what do you have? The kingdom of David and the kingdom of Ishbosheth, and they collide. Point number two, the kingdom of God contended. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maenaim, and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth's son, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to rule over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of David, the house of Judah, followed David. And so King Saul's cousin, Abner, and also the general of his army, is not, is not pleased with what's taking place in the southern tribe of Judah, even though he knows this is what's supposed to happen. And so what does he do? He gleans the power, he gathers the power of the northern tribes, and he takes Ishbosheth, which literally means, in the Hebrew, son of shame is his name. Son of shame. He takes the son of shame, and he crowns him king over the northern tribes. Now, unlike David's coronation, Ishbosheth's coronation, he was made king in, in, in a place called Maonaim. And Maonaim was outside of the promised land. The Philistines, when, when Saul lost to Gilboa, the Philistines moved east rapidly, and they pushed most of the northern tribes right out of the promised land. They pushed them east of the river, east of the Jordan. And so Abner takes this illegitimate heir to the throne. I want you to notice this. Without the consent of God, he, he, uh, he crowns him as king outside of the borders of Israel over a people who no longer have their land. And this is the beginning of the rule of the kingship in the northern tribes. It was illegitimate. It was established by human power and ambition, by the ambition particularly of Abner. You read through 2 Samuel chapter 2, and you realize Ishbosheth is a puppet in the hands of Abner. Abner was going against the ordained will of God. He knew. He knew better. 
He knew that David was supposed to be the heir. And so his movement, this, this plan that he was working against, was not just a movement against David and David's kingdom. The, the, the conflict would continue. But it was a rebellion against God himself, against the man that God had ordained. And Abner decided to do this by force. Now, before I continue, many will read 2 Samuel chapter 2, and you will see Abner in the wrong light. Abner is the aggressor here. I want to show you. Abner is the aggressor of this entire movement, and all the lives that are lost in chapter 2, it's on Abner's head. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 12 and 13. It says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maenaim to Gibeon. Now, Gibeon, Gibeon was five miles from Jerusalem. So Abner took all the men of the north, and he brought them right to the border of Judah. It was a declaration of war against David and his men. And then we're told in verse 13, And Joab, Joab is the general of David's army, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. Now Abner brought a much larger force with him. Most of the Bible students say he was there with a formidable force. Joab goes out and they meet at the pool of Gibeon. And so now we have the two kingdoms with their swords in hand coming head to head. Right, the conflict is going to go from a cold war to a hot war, to battle. Abner makes a suggestion. He says, get your 12 best men. Bring them out. I'll bring my 12 best, and we'll see who wins. A duel of sorts with multiple people. Look at verse 14. Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete for, before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David, verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. All 24 men are slain instantly in that moment. It was a stalemate with the duel. So what happens? All-out war ensues. Look at verse 17. The battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. 360 men from the north died that day in their battling their brothers from the south. David's men, they lost 19. And so after we have this great chase of Abner by uh, Asahel, Asahel was the brother of Joab, and we have this great chase. And, and so Abner and his re- army, they're retreating, and as he calls back to Asahel, stop pursuing me, turn to the left or the right, Asahel does not listen, and Abner kills him, as you know from the story. And then he's able to gather all the men of Benjamin and, and they gather at this one particular place and he cries out to Joab for a ceasefire. But he doesn't do it for the reasons stated. He's being beaten badly and he knows that his end will be death at the end of this day. So look at what he says, verse 25. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and they took their stand at the top of a hill And Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? This is an ironic statement. He brought the war. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. And otherwise, we'd have kept going until we defeated you thoroughly. And then 28, so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more and nor did they fight any more. So one of the first things I want, I don't want you to be seduced by Abner. 
Abner was a trickster. And he was tricking Joab, right? And so when we look at the, the consequences of this battle, it was on Abner's head. He's the one who engaged in the battle. Abner knew Samuel. Abner knew that Samuel had appointed David as heir to the throne. Abner knew, he knew that the fall of King Saul in battle was a result of God's doing. He knew that this kingdom was supposed to be ruled by David in the future. And so what is Abner doing? He's raging against God. This is not just some extended feud between Saul and David that Abner is going to continue. This is an extended battle against God himself. David now is God's anointed, not Saul. And so for Abner to go against him and to continue this battle was to go against God. Now you might say to yourself, this might be a a contemporary evaluation of Abner. Well, he's a fool. Maybe he just wasn't that bright. Maybe he was ill-educated. Some of you might say he was just a bloodthirsty megalomaniac. Others today would probably say Abner was insane. You know, if Abner were brought today into custody, he would be put before a professional psychiatrist. He would be labeled with some phony mental illness. He would be prescribed a medication and not allowed to have a firearm. I mean, that would be the state of Abner today. And we would say, yes, that's exactly what's wrong with him. This man has mental issues. We are so quick to categorize the Abners of this world with being foolish, stupid, or mentally ill, because as soon as we do that, we can separate ourselves, right? But we know better. The Bible teaches us better. Abner was not mentally ill. Abner was not stupid either. In fact, he was a masterful uh, tactician when it came to military exercise. The best word to describe Abner's action in light of what he knew to be true, it's simple. The word is sin. Abner was a sinner. Abner was in full rebellion against God. I mean, my beloved, isn't this the entire movement of all of human history? Doesn't all of human history emulate Abner? We, we know what's right, and yet we reject it. Don't we do exactly what he did here, rebelling against the living God who is anointed over us, who seats Christ over us? Abner joined the ranks of Adam and Eve, those at, at Babel, the men of the days of Noah, He joins the ranks of all those who killed the prophets. He joins the ranks of the Pharisees who railed against Christ. He joins the ranks of Herod. He joins the ranks of Pontius Pilate. And he joins the ranks of all of human history who said very clearly, we will not have this man, this Christ, rule over us. And so he rebelled. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 14, in nearing Jerusalem, He proceeded to tell a parable. I won't read the whole parable, but the first part is applicable for us. Because many suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And when they say the kingdom of God, they're talking about the consummation of human history, Christ coming again in all the glory of the Father. He said to them in verse 12 of Luke 19, A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Listen to verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegate after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We don't want this man reigning over us. Abner's rejection of David grievously exposes the human heart for all of human history. It exposes us. We equally cry out to God, we do not want this man, we do not want the son of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ. We don't want him ruling over us. And it's not because we're insane. 
although you may argue that, it's because we're sinful. Because the sinful heart does not desire God as God. Deep down, we know the truth as well. But to live it out in our lives is an entirely different thing. We know we're rebellious because we can quote scripture with our lips, but it doesn't play out in our hands and our feet. Many of you who profess Christ will declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and yet not submit to the most basic teachings that come from your Lord's mouth. Abner was not stupid and he was not insane. He was full of sin. And one of the things that I believe we must draw from this is seeing that we too are in great rebellion against this living God. The conflict that we see here between the divinely sanctioned kingdom of David and the counterfeit kingdom of man established by Abner and Ishbosheth, it foreshadows all of human history until Christ comes again. This battle will continue to rage until the glory of Christ comes again. But the ending is glorious. It will not stay like this. How many of you at times, how many of you grow weary of the battle? How many of you times say, it's just every day is a fight, and I thank God for that. If you're not in a fight, then I worry about you being in Christ, because if you're in Christ, you're in a fight. You're in a fight every day. You're in a fight for your soul. You're in a fight for the souls of your family and those whom you love. You're in a fight at work. You're in a fight in your neighborhood. It's a battle. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man colliding always. You say, well, when does this end? When will it stop? You know the answer. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 40. Let me read to you the word of God. Jesus said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And then he says in verse 32, and throw them in the fiery furnace in that place where there'll be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the second death. That is the lake of fire. That is where everybody will go who does not know Christ as Lord. And then, he says in verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God, their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, if you're like me, when you read 2 Samuel chapter 2, I don't identify myself with David. I identify myself with Abner. I see Abner in myself. I see myself in rebellion against this God. I see much of my life, including my saved life, in rebellion against this God. And so I I ask myself, and I pray you do the same, what mess am I in? I mean, if I I interpret Matthew 13, when the angels of God come, they're going to grab me, and they'll cast me into the fiery furnace, because I'm like Abner. And if you think even a little bit further, you know that you can't overcome your sin. When you recognize your sin before a holy God, you said, I can't do anything to overcome this. There's no work. There's no money. There's no ministry. There's no sacrifice that I could possibly do to overcome the depth of my sin through and through. And that is a true statement. There's nothing we can do to overcome our sin. You cannot change your own heart. No work, no religion, no pilgrimage to remove the same that stain that soils the soul. And if you find yourself there a bit concerned, I want you to hear this last point because the last point is glorious and it just jumped off the page this week in my studies. I want you to listen to the peace offering offered by David. 
And this peace offering offered in Christ allows the sinner like you and me to be set free from the bondage of our own sin, from the power of the men of this world, from the fiery furnace. And instead, we will be part of verse 43 of Matthew 13. We will be part of the righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, of our father. So I say to you on this last point, if you're still with me, as Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Point number three, this peace offering from the king. This is a little difficult historically, so I want you to track me. If you didn't didn't like history when you were in school, you probably didn't have a good history teacher. History is a story. It's a real story, but it's a story. It's fantastic. It's one of the reasons the narratives in the Old Testament are so wonderful. Not only do they reveal God and his kingdom, but they're great stories. Did you read chapter 2 this week and go, oh, this is boring, boring? No, it's fantastic. Listen to this peace offering. Right after David became king of Judah, and before the hostilities started with Abner and the southern kingdom, David does something extraordinary. He offers an extension of peace to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. He said, Jabesh-Gilead, let me show you. Beginning at the middle of verse 4. Jump back up a bit. When they, these are the people of Judah, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now listen to verse 7. He says, now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. He said, I'm not getting it. In 1 Samuel, if you remember, when Saul died, they cut off his head, they stripped him of his armor, and then they literally nailed him to a wall at Beth Shan. We're told at the very end of 1 Samuel 31, this is the men of Jabesh Gilead. Listen to this. It's fantastic. They arose and they went all night. They traveled all night into enemy territory and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and they came back to Jabesh and they burned them there and they took their bones and they buried them under the Tamarash tree in Jabesh and they fasted for seven days. This glorious work for God. for for God's anointed. The people of Jabesh Gilead, they were staunch Saulites. If you remember why, you probably do from 1 Samuel chapter 11. You remember Nahash the Ammonite? Remember he had threatened to gouge out the right eye of all the men in Jabesh Gilead and they sent a message to Saul and Saul came to their rescue. Saul saved them from the torture of this pagan king. And so they were indebted to Saul. They followed Saul ruthlessly and lovingly. So what does David do? David realizes he's going to have a real problem. These men who are so committed to Saul are not going to come under the reign of King David well, or at least peacefully. And so David, he thanks them for the great work they did in burying Saul and Jonathan, who was one of the sons that died in battle. And then he says to them, I am now king, and this is a this is an olive branch. This is an extension of peace saying, I want you to be strong and valiant and come under me. I want you to come and submit to me because I am now the new anointed king of Israel. 
David knew that Jabesh Gilead, they were going to be literally caught between Abner and David. Jabesh Gilead was, it was in the, on the east side of the Jordan River also in the half-tribe of Manasseh. In other words, they were in the northern kingdom. And when Abner would, would align the northern tribes, they would be expected to follow him. And so David offers this extension. Look at verse 7. Again, he says, Now therefore let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Be strong and courageous, for though Saul is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king. He's saying, Come under me, come under my divinely appointed authority, and I will reign over you, I will protect you, I will be your king. You say, well, why did he write this to Jabez Gilead? Two reasons. One, as I said, they were, they were Saulites through and through. They would die for Saul. But there's another reason. For those of you who know the book of Judges well, the history of the, of the men and women at Jabez Gilead is grievous. In Judges chapter 21, do you remember when all the tribes of the north went to exact vengeance upon Benjamin for the grievous crime that took place amongst them? Do you remember that? The men of Jabesh Gilead said, we will not go. And once the tribes of the north finished dealing with Benjamin, they went back and they said, what do we do with them? They would not submit to us. So what did they do? They went into Jabesh Gilead and they slaughtered everyone. They kept 400 virgin women, gave them to the Benjamites, and 600 men fled. But that was it. Everybody else died. Now I guarantee you this is in their history. And so one of the first things they thought when they heard David became king, they thought, oh no. Again, they're going to be tested. Are we going to align with, with this illegitimate kingdom? Are we going to align ourselves with Abner and the king of the north? Or will we listen to this new king, this King David, and come under him? David offered them something that was going to be extremely costly. He knew that for them to come under him would put them against Abner and Ishbosheth. He knew that. He knew their history. He probably knew their fears. And he fully expected, saints, them to come under him as king and he would rule over them, that they would submit to him as a legitimate God-appointed king. In other words, they had a choice to make. The men of Jabesh Gilead had a choice to make. Do we follow David, the one that God appointed? Or we follow Ishbosheth, the one that Abner appointed? You say, well, how does this bear upon my life in Christ? The greater David, Jesus Christ, he makes the same plea to fallen man, does he not? Does, did he not come into this world as a king and say, here is the conflict? Jesus Christ, knowing better than anyone else the pain and the consequences that come with sin and death, he offers mankind a way out of conflict, a way out of our own rebellion, a way out of, of continuing to follow Abner, continuing to follow the ways of this world, because I'm, I'm going to give you a way out, and it's coming under me, into my kingdom. Jesus Christ in the gospel of grace goes out and says, you can find security and salvation. Christ says, you can find it in me, or you can continue on your way as Abner did. This is the longing that Christ has for us to come to him as king, to come under him as king, to submit our lives in total to him, 
that we might receive the grace and know him and be loved by him and love him in return to be in Christ. As he approached Jerusalem in his final days, we're told this in Matthew chapter 23. This is our Lord speaking. You say, how do I know this longing is true? He expressed it clearly over the same city and the same people that were going to take his life. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who who are sent to it. Listen to this. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus Christ looks over lost mankind. How often have I longed to gather you like a hen brings her chicks under the wing to provide them protection. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that myself by entering the fiery furnace. I'm going to go to that place that you don't want to go. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to have my blood spilled and my body broken. I'm going to pay for the sins of all who repent and believe and follow me. I will pay for their sins. I will take their hell and I will rise again so that in so doing, you can come under me because Christ knows, he knows he is the king. He knows that we are fallen. He knows that we have the heart of Abner and that we rail against God and that we rail against his kingdom. And so Christ does the unthinkable by taking our right and just eternal condemnation upon himself. Why? So that he can extend grace to us and bring us under his kingship. He's king. Like David offered peace to those in Jabesh Gilead, so too does God this day through the greater David through the son of David, offer peace to mankind. He offers that peace. The gospel goes out far and wide. The Bible commands all men everywhere to repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ the King. This should be our hope for one another and it should be our hope for lost man as well. A few thoughts and we'll close. We must recognize that until Jesus Christ comes again in glory, these two kingdoms will be at war. If you have some weird theology where you think the world's going to become a much better place, that you're going, that we're going to eventually, you know, climb up to a, a people that we don't suffer like we suffer, then you've got to reread scripture. It says just the opposite. It actually says things are going to get worse before they get better. Right? The conflict will continue. You say, well, why are you telling me this? Are you just trying to bring me down? No, I want you to know two things. One, the, the kingdom of this world, Satan and mankind, their desire is to do everything they can to keep those who are in the dark in the dark. And therefore, we must bring the gospel of truth. We must bring the true king into the dark that people might see, repent, and believe and come under him to stop following Abner, to stop going down that direction of the fiery furnace. But secondly, this kingdom, this, this battle rages against you too, against your soul the kingdom of darkness, Satan and the dominions and all those who hate God would love nothing more than to cause you to stumble and fall. If you're in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You belong to Christ, but boy, you can sure make a mess of things. I mean, we can really ruin the testimony for God. And so this conflict continues and it will continue until Christ comes. So listen to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3.18 when he says, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Be on guard. Watch out. 
Do you know we're at war? Do you wake up every morning and say, all right, I'm going to put on the armor. This is a real battle and a real conflict, and I'm in it. I mean, you're not some logistics officer sitting behind enemy lines. You're in the thick of it. You've been put to the very front. You've been called by Christ. Number two, we must count the costs. The men at Jabesh Gilead, when they were offered this opportunity to come under the king of Judah by David, they knew it would come at a great cost to them. We don't know what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us this part of the narrative. But we know that the cost of submitting to David and Judah would have been a costly endeavor for them. Maybe their lives. Maybe an episode that happened as it did back in the book of Judges. It is no different for those who follow the anointed today. You follow the God's anointed today. You follow Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Luke 14. I love it. When Jesus shared the gospel, he pulled no punches. He didn't say, you know what? You, you come to me. You repent. You believe. You follow me. And life's going to be great. I mean, it's just going to be easy for you. You're going to have every desire fulfilled, every job you want, your wife, your children, education. It's going to be great. He doesn't say that. Listen to what he says. Great crowds accompanied him. What a sermon. What a sermon of our Lord. He has the masses before him. So unlike most sermons that are preached in most churches today, listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is it any wonder they left? You know what he was saying? He was saying, you got to love me most. I got to be first. I got to be, you got to love me more than you love your wife. You got to love me more than you love your parents. You got to love me more than you love your children, your grandchildren. And he says, even your own life. And then he continues. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he says, cannot be my disciple. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus, it's total surrender to God. Jesus says, I love you, I'm king. And you are following Abner. And I'm calling you to surrender what? To surrender everything and come under me, your king. Because Christ is a good king. And the plan he has for us is a glorious plan of redemption and life eternal with God the Father. By not submitting to the will of God, by not recognizing Jesus Christ as the legitimate king, as the heir to the throne who sits upon the throne, by not realizing this, by not living in accordance with it, by attempting to create, which is what most of us do, our own kingdoms like Abner. We're not different, are we? I mean, we may not have an Ishbosheth to put on the throne, but we have kings seated upon the throne of our hearts, and it's not Christ. If we continue to create this false reality, instead of submitting and waiting upon the Lord, forcing our agenda, instead of coming under Christ, my beloved, if God is not your king, if Christ is not your savior, then the fiery furnace will be your end. That'll be your end. The angel will come of God and they will gather you and they will throw you into that place where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Will the world despise you if you trust in Christ? Yes. Will you be at odds with your parents and your spouse and your children and your friends and family and coworkers and boss? Most certainly. Most certainly. But if you are, 
And it's because God has poured his love out on you in Christ. And you are living in accordance with that love. Out of the sheer gratitude you have that Christ died in your place and took your punishment so you could live. If, that, if you live this life of submission and obedience out of your radical love for God, then Jesus has some very encouraging words for you, both now and for eternity. Because Peter had the same question. Peter asked this in Mark chapter 10. Peter said, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one, including you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, the age of eternal life. Will there be costs? Extreme. But God says, come under Christ and all the blessings now and forever will infinitely outweigh any cost that you experience now. Third thing I want to draw to our attention before I close. In the midst of the conflict, we must remember that Christ is reigning and the kingdom is advancing. In the midst of the mess, on those dark days when you feel utterly alone, when your countenance is completely fallen, when you don't want to get out of bed, you don't want to get up to go to work, I mean, you're at that rock bottom, you say, well, you just described my whole life. If you struggle and you suffer like that, you must know that in those times, you never, ever, ever give up. Why? Because Christ is on his throne and the king is advancing. That is a categorical fact. Scriptures teach clearly to it. That means, if you follow the news like I do, when all the media, and it seems like it's the exact opposite direction, when all the media and the courts and the governments and the schools and your employer and your own family seem to indicate otherwise that Satan and darkness is advancing, you must know the truth. Christ is on his throne and the kingdom is advancing in the hearts of men. We know this to be true. You say, well, how do I know that? Mustard seed. How did it start with David? Like a mustard seed. How did it start with Christ? Like a mustard seed. How did it start with you? A mustard seed. I mean, when Christ first came to you and he saved you, it was a mustard seed. You're not the person now that you were then, thank God. And you won't be the person 10 years from now that you are now, praise God. Christ is seated upon his throne. The kingdom is advancing. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He said in Luke 12, 32, great little verse, memorize this. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give it to you. So I didn't earn it. Christ earned it for you. So I don't belong there. You're right. Outside of Christ, you don't. In Christ, you do. In Christ, you do. Expect the battle. Count the costs. Know that Jesus Christ is on the throne and in our midst and the kingdom is advancing and therefore do not be discouraged. How many of you had a hard week? How many of you had a hard month? He said, I've had a hard year. Do not be discouraged. Take the counsel of David. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. 
If you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe and surrender to Christ. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, you know that you're in him, that you're hidden in him. In Colossians chapter 3, this king, this new king, Christ, the Bible says that you have died, you've died your old self, and your new life is now hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means? You're hidden. It means people can't see me. No. It means that your new life, your eternal life, is with Christ, locked up, sealed up. That means no Abner, no foe, no matter how fierce or how foreboding, can bring any lasting harm to you in Christ. And therefore... We need not be like Abner and take life into our own hands. We don't have to press against God. We don't have to fight to get what we think we need. We don't have to try to manipulate circumstances and people and opportunities to try to work out our own salvation by our own grace. Instead, the Bible says, rest in God. Wait upon God. You know the verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these other things, all the things that you think you need, if you truly need them, God will give them to you. And the things you think you need that you don't, God will change your desires. He's a glorious God. He'll give you what you need and he'll change your desires for the things that you don't. If you seek him, you wait upon him. If you're in Christ, then you stay in Christ. You'll remain in him until he comes again in glory. And this is not some pie in the sky, fanciful hope of a myth. This is truth. This is gospel truth. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he is the king of your life, then you are absolutely 100% secure in him. No matter what your life looks like right now, no matter how desperate times may be, and if you're watching things take place throughout the world, it's, it's amazing, the darkness. It seems to be just collapsing. If you find yourself afraid in those moments, go back to Christ. I have no fear in you. Christ is king, and the kingdom is advancing. I'm going to close by reading to you from Romans chapter 8, some of the more encouraging verses in the New Testament. I want you to hear this as the word of God because it is, and I want us to live in accordance with it, and then I'll pray. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He could actually stop right there, right? If God's for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. But he continues, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is the church. But then he says in verse 37, he says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And then he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, period. Do you know that? Nothing. Paul couldn't think of anything else to say. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus. My beloved Christ is on his throne and the kingdom is advancing. By God's grace, we will participate effectively in that as we serve our most glorious king. Let's pray.